everybody. Um, uh, we're hoping that you're at the right session, that you're here to learn about finding your hidden audiences. Everybody at the right place? Thank you so much for coming. So I thought maybe what we should do is start by a round of introductions. Um, just say your name and where you're from and how many hours it took you to get here. How about that? Um, and I'll start. I'm Nancy Moses. I um, work for Nancy Moses Planning and Development. And I came from Philadelphia. And it, from my house, it took um, six hours, no, about three hours. But that's just because I got to the airport too early. My name is Rachel Dukeman. I work for RNR Creative. And I'm also from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I think I got you beat. I think we got here in about two and a half hours. Um, same trip. <laughs> uh, I'm Libby File from the St. Joe County Public Library, the local history section of Southend, and I'll be back for you. Uh, I'm Jane Hadeen. I'm from the Indiana Historical Society here in Indianapolis. <laughs> so, at short trip. <laughs> uh, Elise Hackenbrack of Dayton History Carolina Historical Park, about two hours. And you drove? We drove. Yeah, Great. I'm Lisa Zaylor, and I'm from History, Colorado, and it took about six hours to get here. Ed Nichols, uh, History, Colorado Saint. Great. I'm Amy Novick from the Indiana Historical Society. It took me about 23 minutes to get to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Marcia Mullen. I'm from the Hermitage, the home of Andrew Jackson, and it took me five and a half hours because I drove. Wow, I'm glad. I'm Patty Smith of Freedom Design Incorporated out of Tampa. It took me about two and a half hours to get here just because the airplanes were free. Uh, Mike Fraley from the State Historic Society of North Dakota and Midwest North Dakota. It's about a flight to Minneapolis, and here it's about two and a half hours. I'm Amy Wilson from the Chemon County Historical Society in Elmira, New York. I flew here five, five and a half hours between JG Flake. <laughs> I'm Becky Fulcher from the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. And it was only a couple hour flight with the small trip to southern Indiana work in, too, so it's not too long. <laughs> I'm Angela from the Public House in Columbus, Ohio, and there's about three hours of Ann Thompson, I'm from Rural College in Richmond, Indiana, and I'm also here on behalf of the Wayne County Historical Museum. It's about an hour away. Chris Shires, I'm from the uh, Edsel and Eleanor Courthouse in Chris Warren, Columbus, Michigan, and about five hundred dollars. I'm sorry, what is the name of your institution? Edsel and Eleanor Courthouse. Huh. Jay Bullitt, I'm at the South Dakota State Historical Society. It was wheels up in Pittsburgh, but it wheels down in Minneapolis, about Minneapolis. <coughs> layover in Minneapolis. Don Zuris. Corpus Christi Museum of Science and History in Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, about four hours. Huh. Four hours in the air? Yeah. Uh, Ann Kirby, and I'm with the Montgomery County, Indiana Historical Society. And I live an hour and a half away, but I cheated and stayed with my daughter, so it was about 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm Vanessa Van Zandt. I'm from the Cincinnati History Museum and uh, the Cincinnati Union Terminal. Cincinnati. 
Hi, I'm Paula Homan. I'm uh, with the St. Louis Cardinals uh, Museum, and we drove. It took about four hours, but it seemed longer because we lost an hour. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm Lois Nicholas. I'm with the Hershey Story, the museum on Chocolate Avenue, and it was about three hours. I'm Kathy Munster. I'm with the National Park Service, Gateway Arch in St. Louis, and I'm with Paula, and it took about that long. I'm Alexander Hudson, I'm at the Siege National Museum at Chapelisa in Memphis, Tennessee, and I took the almost five hours. Nine hours? I'm four months pregnant, so I had a lot of stops. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. I'm Pat Miller uh, with the Illinois Heritage Association in Champaign, Illinois. It took me two hours. I didn't make any stops. <laughs> I'm Lynn Hollingsworth from the Kentucky Historical Society. It took us at least three and a half hours getting here, hopefully. It won't take us long going back because there shouldn't be any accidents at that hour. Oh, oh, my goodness. I'm Kelly Thompson. I'm also from the Kentucky Historical Society. And I wrote this <laughs> I'm Norman Burns, Maynard Foundation, Richmond, Virginia. Would have been 11 and a half hours driving, about five and a half hours flying, not all the time. <laughs> So what we're doing is we're telling our names of our institutions and how long it took us to get here. Can you to share? Talent, uh, to Talbot, I have to stay for a stop at Farm Service site over in Kansas. Nine hours of time change and I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Walt Krim. I live about a half an hour from here in Philadelphia and uh, I'm an architect. Uh, an hour and 20 minutes by flight. Great. Hey. Yeah, could you tell us who you are and where you're from and how long it took you to get here? Um, go ahead. <laughs> Jill Vance, Springville State Park, and I'm only about two hours, 15 minutes out of here. Great. I'm Norma Stride, I'm from the Arcade Museum, and I'm about five hours away from here in Kentucky. Kathy Brewer, African African American Historical Society Museum, right in Fort Wayne, wow. Indiana, about what, two hours. <laughs> so, who did we miss? Miss anybody? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, everyone. I'm Daniel Ankindella. I'm from the Indianapolis Museum of Art. I actually cycled down here. It took me about 20 minutes. So, thank you all for coming for such a long way. I think that one of the most exciting things about this particular conference is how diverse the communities are that are represented in a session like this. And that makes especially interesting and, and challenging for panelists because we have to um, make a presentation that not only will move you forward in your thinking, but move everybody but everybody's in a different place, so it's a real challenge to move everyone forward. And when you have one that's a, that has technical aspects, like the one you're going to hear today, um, we, are, we hope that we've pitched it just right for you. Today, um, we're going to share some traditional and non-traditional market research techniques that can help you find and satisfy the needs and desires of your audiences, um, your hidden audiences. We're going to show you how the lines between marketing, which is 
drawing audiences to your institution and programming, which is delivering content and experiences, are blurring in some very exciting ways and very provocative ways. And since every museum cares about its visitors, there's been always a need and a desire to know more about them. Everybody wants to know more about their visitors. It makes them do a better job. In this economy, it's not only something good, it's something necessary. Think about it a minute, about the institutions that, are, that have um, visitor shifts that are dropping because people can't afford to go. Think about um, your development departments that are having trouble in um, annual campaigns and, um, and major donors and, and ordinary gifts. It's a really tough year. And I'm hoping that it's going to get better next year. But I'll tell you, next year, even if it doesn't get better, we will have learned a lot this year. And one of the things that can help us all is learning how to develop conversations, ongoing connections with our audiences. And that's why the kinds of social web, social networking, technologies that we're going to talk about today are so really vital now because they start conversations, they hook people in, and people respond, and when they feel they're connected, that's when they're going to participate. Even if they don't have the money now, they'll remember you in the future. So, this is a very good time to have uh, this kind of session, um, and especially for an audience like this, because think about it a minute. Historical organizations are particularly well-positioned um, to engage the public in conversations. Guess why? It's because your content is so accessible. You're telling the story of your community. You're telling the people who are, the story of the people who are right outside your doors. So, in shaping this presentation, there were three things that we had in mind. Um, first of all, we knew that there was going to be um, people with various levels of technology experience and technology savvy, some people my age, um, and some people Rachel and Daniel's age. And so we wanted to think about how to connect with everybody and how to present the information in a way that everybody could feel comfortable with it. Secondly, um, it, it is important, I think, for us to realize that not everybody comes from um, the most wealthy institutions in the country. Some of you do. Some of you come from smaller, poorer institutions. And so that meant that we had to focus as much as we could on giving you technologies and ideas and tips that would work in any institution, but with a smaller institution focus. And finally, money and technology are at the top of the head. So we think that you deserve to know how long things take to do, how much they cost, and where to get free stuff. Our goal is to give you something that you can use, not in five years or five weeks, but Monday. That's our goal here. So let me tell you what our format is. I'm the moderator. Um, we're going to start with brief introductions for the three of us. And then the three of us together are going to give a presentation. It's going to be about 40 minutes in length. We're going to show you some really cool stuff, too. 
Um, and then we'll have questions and answers. We believe that there may be some people in this room, when you see um, some of the information we're sharing with you, we'll have a burning question. And if you do, what we're going to ask you to do is to text message me. And I'm going to write it down, and we'll have that as the first questions that we answer. So now I'm going to give you my cell phone. And since I'm a consultant, I want to do it anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, my cell phone is 215-802-7949. So if any of you have a burning question, um, just call it in. I have to turn my cell phone on. <laughs> I will in it. Um, it's going to be, we have about 90 minutes together, um, but it's the end of a long day, and there's things to do that people want to do in the evening, so we think maybe that would serve everybody's best interest if we snip off the end of it and made it a little bit shorter of a present of an afternoon for us. Uh, but we did give you some handouts um, that are a little blurry, um, so sorry. Um, we have ones for people who didn't get them. And it basically uh, gives you some of the definitions of, what, of the technology we're discussing. And um, it's a place where you can also take notes. So um, one last thing. Sessions and conferences like the, these are only as good, not as the presenters, but as the audience. Sessions are only as good as the audience. So I know this is going to be a great audience. You're going to ask provocative questions. You're going to challenge the panelists, and we're going to have a great time. So I thank you again for coming from uh, near and far to attend it. I'll start by um, introducing myself. I'll turn it over to Rachel. As I said earlier, uh, my name is Nancy Moses, and um, history museums have been my passion since I graduated from uh, the George Washington University in the very first program they had in museum management for history museums. So that was not yesterday. Um, I, was a, I was a director of a museum called Atwater Kent Museum in Philadelphia. Um, and most of my career, though, has been working as a um, consultant in and for not-for-profit organizations. A lot of what I do is planning, including the kind of market research that you'll be hearing about today. Um, I should also tell you, um, with your permission, I'm going to plug my book. I wrote, a, <laughs> I wrote a book called Lost in the Museum, Hidden Treasures and the Stories They Tell. And what it is, is it tells the story of your world from the inside out. So it's all about the peculiar places that museums and historical societies are. And the way I told that story is through finding an object buried in the basement that had a great backstory, and using that to spin out the story of the institution. Altamira Press has it upstairs. Rachel? And I read her book. <laughs> uh, my name is Rachel Duquin. I live and work in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I moved to Philly about five years ago to attend the Graduate School of Museum Studies at the University of the Arts there, and received my Master of Arts degree in museum communication. Uh, then. Basically, I worked doing project-based work in audience engagement, trying to see what different audiences, institutions could reach out to and to help them develop programming to reach those audiences. 
Uh, my most, going backwards, my most recent project was the Lincoln 200 Festival that we did for the Lincoln Bicentennial, which was a multidisciplinary festival that lasted about three days on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, uh, right across from Independence Hall, between the Independence Hall and between the uh, National Constitution Center. Um, it was a very interesting festival um, in so much as it was based on Lincoln, but they brought me on to be the project director to see if they could branch out and reach other audiences and to see what um, people would be interested in seeing. And so that's when we started to make it uh, multidisciplinary. Uh, we based it in history, getting a sort of, uh, uh, basing it on the 1864 Central Fair, but then branched out into contemporary art, science, technology, visual arts, performing arts, the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well. And I also, um, for going to an art school, received a background in art history and web design and graphic design. Uh, so I'll be talking a little bit more about the analytical parts and the design aspects as well. Hello again, everyone. I'm Daniel. Um, I wish I had a book to plug, but I don't. But <laughs> I do have a lot of uh, websites and online initiatives that we've created that I will plug um, later in the presentation. I've been at the, the IMA for five years now, and my responsibilities include everything from overseeing content for special exhibitions, such as uh, special websites, to overseeing the IMA blog, our presence on Flickr, um, our involvement in Facebook, videos on YouTube, working with Apple on iTunes U, and also a new site we've launched in April called Art Babble. If you had told me five years ago that I'd be sitting here telling you all the things we're doing now, I would have laughed, really. <laughs> so later I want to sort of explain IMA's evolution into the digital arena and where we started and, and where we are now. And overall, I feel absolutely the luckiest guy in the world to have the job that I have. It, it's wonderful to be able to go to work and tell um, digital stories in the way that we do. Great. Okay. Basics of market research. How do you know what your public wants? You ask them. Done. That's it. <laughs> we can move on to the next panel. Um, and that might seem to you to be self-evident, and it is self-evident to many of you. But um, a lot of times people who work in historical societies and museums plan from the inside out rather than from the outside in. I'll give you an example. Um, when I came to Atwater Kent Museum the, uh, as a director of Philadelphia's History Museum, I had a background in marketing. I'd done marketing communications for years. And so I got how important that was to institutions. The very first money I raised, we put into market research, um, where we, um, at, we had a series of focus groups and asked one question to every, different, every group. And that was, what are the Philadelphia stories that you want to hear? We asked it of tourism officials, of parents of school-aged children. We asked it of teachers, um, of older adults, and um, of, we had a focus group of children. 
And that, the, the answers to that simple question set the exhibit schedule for the future, for the duration of the time I was there. For example, um, we had a small museum, and um, after doing the focus groups, I realized that the people, that the family audience was the same on the weekends and the weekdays. They called them school groups during the week and family groups during the weekend, but it was the same people, you know, because there were mothers who brought the kids in, school-aged kids, up to like 10 or 11 years old. And so what they wanted was they wanted to see themselves in the museum. And so we created an exhibit. Actually, the students created the exhibit. We had students curate an exhibit, a then and now exhibit, where they went into our, our collections, they found an object, that spoke to them in our collection, and then they went home to their bedrooms and brought back the equivalent. So we had um, fabulous historic dolls and Barbie dolls. And, you know, we had funny old-fashioned telephone gizmos and cell phones. And that exhibit was really popular, and it was just one of the things that moved us forward. But we wouldn't have thought of it if we hadn't done that research. Market, um, everybody uses the term focus groups in market re for market research, um, and that's a term that comes out about of the advertising business. Um, it is great at some things and not good at some things. It's great at, for finding people's attitudes, their values, and their preferences. It's not good for... Um, statistical analysis. We'll show you some other data, uh, other techniques you can use for that. Um, and the way that the traditional way um, that focus groups are done is that you get a representative group. Generally, you hire a company to find you a representative sample of, say, uh, parents of school aged children who come from communities with a certain, you know, with um, incomes between 60 and 100,000. You hire a group to do that. Um, they, uh, you go to a special facility with a um, one-way mirror. You have the whole thing recorded. You pay people to come to these sessions, and you feed them. That's the traditional way it's done. That's the old-fashioned way to do it. It is very expensive to do. And if you don't have that kind of research money... You should not give up the hope of having a focus group because there are ways that you can cut corners. And here are some of the tricks of the trade. First of all, you have to have a representative group because if you don't, then your information will be skewed. I heard a story upstairs about how a group of people decided to do a focus group. They asked the people who were members of their organization to come to the focus group. The staff sat in. I don't think you're going to get very much candid information from that. It <laughs> just won't happen. I did a focus group once with um, the people who were hosting it were not real clear, and they didn't realize that you were not supposed to serve cocktails before the focus group. <laughs> That one didn't go so They got very candid information. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have to get a representative group. And, and for museums, what's most important for you guys is not to get people who are connected with your institution, but who aren't connected. Because you know why the people who are connected are coming. Second, and this is really important, you have to feed them well. You have to give them an incentive to come. 
So often you just order, with, when you do a focus group with students, you order pizza and you tell them you're going to take care of lunch. But whatever it is you do, you feed them, you give them a pass to your museum, you give them some sort of incentive or they won't show. Um, third, you have to ask unbiased questions and I'm going to show you what I mean in a minute. And then the most important thing for you is to sit back and, and listen well. This is supposed to be a neutral conversation. No expressing opinions, um, no body language except tell me more. That's the space you want to be in. Here's some sample questions that I mean by neutral that you might want to think about in your um, institution. Open-ended. What do you find special about this community? Ask that kind of question at the beginning. It's a way to get people to start talking and to feel comfortable, like I did earlier, in asking everybody how long it took um, for them to come here because it was a common experience that everybody could share. Um, can you tell me any stories about your community that would appeal to people of different ages? Um, that's much more, that's something that people can answer much more than what historical facts are important. Um, and finally, we're thinking about activities that parents and kids can do together. We know that families are very busy, so you're acknowledging the fact that, that parents now book, parents and kids are booked in like during hockey season and soccer season and football season. So which weekends would work best? This would be about scheduling. So those are three examples. How does this apply to your online presence? And I'm just going to reiterate something that Nancy said earlier, um, that we really want this to sort of, uh, we want this to fit your needs and realizing that not everyone got their master's degree in this in the past five years. I don't want to, we don't want to speak down, we don't want to sound lectury, so if there's any questions, just feel free to let us know if we need to delve deeper into something, if you know what we're talking about and you want us to skip on to the next so that this is really fulfilling everyone's needs. Um, I think we're going to start by talking about, um, and hopefully since you're all here, you all know about online presence um, and that this will be how to then use that online presence to gain uh, other audiences. So we're going to talk as a case study about the Indianapolis Museum of Art and how they have a presence on some of these social networking sites. And then we're going to talk about some of how to gain uh, statistical analysis from that, what that means about the people that are reaching out to you via the web, and how to create programming to fit that. <coughs> Also, that looks familiar to me. This is the, the IMA, which is uh, about four miles north of here. Um, really beautiful museum with 150 acres of gardens and grounds. It's an encyclopedic museum, so the stories we'll, we tell are, are really diverse. But I wanted to mention that I, I feel somewhat like a fraud coming up here because where the IMA is right now with technology is in the best possible position we could be in ever for an organization producing digital content. We have the, the full support of the director all the way down. We have uh, budget and staff allocations to create content and to try anything. And we are encouraged to be innovative and to take risks. And that is an extremely rare situation um, and something that I try to make the most of. 
So that's, that's the disclaimer, but I will say that has not always been the case. When I began five years ago, I was hired into the education department to oversee technology for the visitor and for education. So it was myself and one person in IT that was trying to convince over 300 other staff that it was a good idea to, to delve into technology. It was a good idea to try new things on the web. And it was a good idea to tell stories through digital means. So it did not go well. It was not an easy process. So what we did was we purposely selected projects that we knew would have a high success rate, would be easy to maintain, and could be managed by one or two people. So I really want to focus on those projects that we did because I feel like those projects are something that you can learn from today. If you wanted to leave this room and implement any of them, you could. Um, so having said that, we started small, and as we ourselves got confidence, but also importantly, the buy-in from other departments within the museum, our projects got bigger and bigger in scope. Where we are right now, we're in sort of a, really a dream world in terms of technology. So um, from day one, we've, we've kind of followed a mantra for digital strategy. And one, that is, if we're going to try things online, ultimately we want to drive traffic back to our main website. That, that is the hub for our visitors. That's where we want to point everyone to do, uh, into the site. When we're producing content, we want to point the content back to the museum, which means we embed content from YouTube or content from Flickr or from our blog directly into the site. So even if we have someone in London watching a video on YouTube, we're using different methods to make sure that they can find more information back at our, our main site. Again, we work in a museum. We don't work in the emergency room. It's okay to make mistakes. Um, and I will keep saying that as long as I live. We started that way, and then we, we got a new director in that one really appreciates the power of technology, but like I said, it encourages us to think outside. So my responsibility to tell digital, digital stories um, started the following way. So I want to talk about some case studies. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> uh, we started on YouTube three years ago. We did that for several reasons. One, we have an emerging video department in-house. So we had these videos, we didn't know what to do with them. We had a really old website that was fragile, which means every time we tried to make the simplest of changes, it would screw something else. So the thought of actually putting a video on our site was impossible. So YouTube was free, they already had a built-in devoted community of followers, and it allowed for us to host all our video content free of charge, which we then embedded back into our site. Um, we also were really intrigued by what could happen with the user interaction. Uh, visitors to YouTube have the possibility of, of leaving comments, rating videos, sharing with friends, doing video responses. But another thing we were interested in was what if we allowed bloggers from all over the world to embed their videos into the post? What would happen? And we had some really good success of bloggers using our videos, which drove our traffic up. 
and also built our reputation as a museum that was willing to take risks online. So uh, in three years, we've had almost 250,000 video views, and we currently have over 600 subscribers. So that was one of our first experiments, and um, it went well. We knew we could manage this. We knew that um, we knew nothing bad would happen. The worst, worst thing would be that no one watched them. So we'll go to the next one. Um, so, so Flickr, which happens to be one of my favorite sites in the whole world, is another thing we started about the same time as YouTube. We knew it was a site we could manage, would be easy, and we could really focus a lot of attention on. Flickr is free for a very basic account, and for the unlimited access, it's only $25 a year. So, so it's cost-effective, and anyone with a digital camera that is walking around an organization or museum has access to a, a lot of content opportunities. So it's really a, a creative use of imagery. It's easy to manage. Anyone that knows how to take, a, take an image and upload it and add text can do this. So really, any staff member could do this. We were really interested in Flickr because they have a very devoted set of, of users. They're passionate, they're engaged, and they're willing to comment. So it had some of the same aspects from YouTube. Um, it, it was extremely easy to use and set up. And we, just, we realized that there, in terms of content, it's limitless. If you have opening events at your organizations, you can do party photos. So, so someone that was at the event can go back and see if they're in image. Everyone loves that. You can do behind-the-scenes um, stories on what's happening at the museum. You can do exhibition installations. But if, can you go back one image? Mm -hmm. This is actually a conservation project. This is an, an x-ray of an Asian vessel, vessel. So to the left there, we have a brief description of the project with a link that points back to our website. And then if you were to go in and look at every single image, one of our conservators has gone through and written a story about this with links back to our site or links to videos that are relevant. So not only are you just providing images, in the case of a party or an exhibition opening, it's kind of fluff, but here it is, it is real content. It has an educational focus and you can provide external links that drive traffic back to your site. And one of the nice things about Flickr now, too, is that they're realizing that um, organizations want to become members, and so they're changing the way they're doing rights of reproduction and copyright laws. Uh, it was originally for photographers to upload their personal images so that anything under their account would be copyrighted to the person who, who owned the account. Um, but now that institutions from the IMA all the way up to the National Archives are putting their content online, um, they're allowing it so that if the National Archives has photographs of, you know, for the people, um, that it doesn't all belong to the National Archives, and then you could use those images uh, and even um, gain, gain on their information from that. Like one part of the project the National Archives did when they started uploading their photographs online was they were actually... Uh, anonymous photographs suddenly had some uh, provenance to them because people were like, oh, hey, I know where that photograph was taken. And user-generated comments then allowed them to gain information about their collection as well. 
and that's one of the things that, um, in order to accommodate different institutions, Flickr has changed. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Oh, that's great. I think there's one more. Yep. Um, how many people are on Facebook? So a lot of people. Um, Facebook, again, is, is very easy to set up. And um, for me, the people within Facebook are used to a two-way dialogue. They're used to commenting. They're used to writing on someone's wall and then following the thread of comments. So really, it's, it's a way for, for us and, and you to cultivate these, these real fan relationships with people that are passionate about the work you're doing, they're passionate about your organization. It allows for, for better interaction because of the ability to reach out to one specific person. But again, it also allows you to pitch certain things, whether it's um, opening special events, um, a video you just posted on YouTube that you can also embed. It's a way of really integrating a lot of the other content you're producing. And again, something that's free to use, easy to set up, and really one person can manage. Um, and it, it's really a good way of getting great user feedback from someone because you're hearing directly, not from an anonymous source, but someone with a real name um, that you can follow up on with. So we launched this, our presence on Facebook about a year ago, and we have over 5,000 fans. So it's a way in which we can do, um, we can do the traditional e-marketing blast to them, but we can also reach out to them with personalized contests or sneak peeks of certain things that we want to um, section out for certain users. So in, in terms of Facebook, you name it, I think anything goes. And Facebook is also now developing specific uh, programs for nonprofits. They have what they call Facebook Causes. Um, and the, this screen is actually a Facebook fan page, not just a per personal profile. And what you could do with Facebook Causes is have a Donate Now button um, on your Facebook page so that people who are your fans can see immediately get linked back to your site, get immediately linked back to your development causes. Is this that cost money? No. You mean you could, I could put a, a spot on a Facebook page that says donate to... You could have the button and that'll take them to a credit card processing and it'll, the money will go right through. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually, it's fairly, um, you ha I think if you, if you can get a grant so that it's even less of a uh, credit card processing fee, but it's a lot less than uh, what, like your ticks.com or whatever else you guys are using as a checkout would be. I think it's like 2 or 3% as opposed to 8 or 9% visa uh, credit card processing. The, um, the first image I showed at the IMA's website, we have a, a gallery slideshow that just goes through. The image up there was Facebook. So we're pointing people to come to our site to Facebook. But once they get to Facebook, you'll notice that they have access to a blog post, videos, uh, events that are on our main site. So we're sending them to Facebook because they're fans that are passionate about that. But once they're on our Facebook page, we're trying to send them back with personalized messaging back to our site. And they, all of these, actually, if you go to um, their sites, have um, images that you could download and links so that you could connect everything. These are actually this three LinkedIn, WordPress, and Facebook 
are the, um, the images that you download off of their site so that you could upload them onto your site and link back to your profile. And I, I've heard a lot, um, you know, people say, look, if we start this Facebook page, what if all the traffic goes to that? And I don't think that's an argument if you think about it strategically because there are ways of where they can, can, can work in harmony and promote things that visitors normally would not ever consider. Blog. The IMA blog. Uh, we launched this uh, 18 months ago. And we... Uh, so new, the new media department oversees the entire blog. And we wanted to provide a destination for visitors interested in our museum and art content direct access to the people that work there. So it's, it's real voices from real experts writing in their own style. So this is not a marketing strategy, this is not a press release. We review every post and we allow them to be authentic and, and real human beings. So for me, a blog is more about the informal voice of an institution that allows the real stories from a variety of departments to come through the visitors. So it's the stories the visitor would never hear ordinarily if they visited an exhibition, read a label. It's not something they would get from reading a press release. It's not even something they would get from approved text that is allowed to go onto the web. It's a way in which you can give an institution more of a human face. And I feel like we've been really, really successful with this because, one, we have the trust from up top to do this, and I understand that is a really nice thing. So we've allowed people to be themselves and just express it in a way that, for me, is authentic. And when you're talking about an online community, they want authentic content. If you constantly give them approved text, it could be a press release or something else, they're going to see right through that. I mean, so it's um, it also promotes really thoughtful visitor interaction because if if a post resonates with someone, they're going to be thoughtful in their responses to you, and it, it's a way in which you can shape the direction of the blog, respond to them, or really think about the type of content you want to um, add on to that. It's also permanent once you publish post. It's a permanent link that lives indefinitely, and it's something that can be reused, reformatted in other forms down the road as you do a site redesign or become create a presence on Facebook and so on. And now I think you're going to talk about Alex. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about a little bit more about the tech technical part of blogs and how it works for an institution that doesn't, say, have a department of 15, but maybe an entire staff of 15, or in this case, uh, two. And this is a blog that was created by the Rosenbach Museum and Library to be part of the Lincoln Bicentennial. Um, it was hosted completely on its own, but it had a link from their main site page, and it was called 21st Century Abe. Um, and actually, one of my colleagues is speaking about it, but he's speaking about it right now. So I can't tell you all to go listen to him, but I will tell you about the specifics of the site. 
Uh, it is a WordPress-based site. Does anybody, like, people have blogs? Do I need to? Right, WordPress is a template that um, is basically software that's free. You download it, and you could have it host on whatever your normal hosting service would be. And it allows you to upload content, whether it be a YouTube-embedded video to an article, to a post, to photographs, you name it. What this project did was find what related Abraham Lincoln to the 21st century. So they went from, they got uh, money from a few foundations to have a contemporary composer uh, compose something that was, uh, well, inspired by Lincoln. They had people go out with their cell phones and take photographs of wherever Lincoln was around their hometown. And they would upload all of this content onto the site to, go, to correlate with an exhibition that the museum had. Um, and so that was how partly it influenced the programming. But what they found was by going through other social networking <coughs> sites, such as Flickr, that there were already people that were uploading photographs of Lincoln um, that weren't submitting to this site but were connected to it. And so they invited them to then submit to the site. They increased their audience base exponentially. And as the project director for the Lincoln 200 Festival, one of the ways that I used this to inform the programming that we put into the festival was to look through some of the contemporary art that was being submitted. And we found that there was, especially um, along, in, along the same time frame as the Obama campaign, a lot of people that were taking contemporary photographs of graffiti of Abraham Lincoln. And from that, we had a graffiti, a street art exhibition to uh, correspond with the Lincoln 200 programming. Um, going back to the technical aspects of having the blog, uh, once you put, like Daniel said, once you put something like this out onto the internet and it's there forever, it could be both good and bad because obviously you need to make sure it fits with your branding and that it's in correlation with your uh, museum's strategic plan. Uh, but it also allows you to be, like if someone were to Google your web, to Google the uh, institutional name, even if you just have the name as part of uh, the photograph when you upload it, they will search and find that and then get back to your site. And so that's one of the ways, too, where that expands your audience base by having a greater presence just on the internet in and of itself. Um, I'm going to show you this is a blog that I started for a website I founded about eight months ago talking about the cultural things in Philadelphia. The name of the site is Philoculturati. And just to give you an idea of how easy this is, um, I created, uploaded, and hosted the site, including the domain name, including purchasing the domain name for uh, $54. And that included downloading the free WordPress template. I customized it only to change the colors and to put in some photographs that would be in the template. It was, I mean, everything was like two-click, you know, simple, ready, and up it went. Um, and then part of finding out who was, who was looking at the site informed who was going to, or what content I was going to put up, and who would, who would read that when. Um, and so going back to sort of the traditional market research, 
The idea of, ex of executing market research on the web is very similar with uh, you know, how do you find out what your audience wants. You ask them. How do you find out what people are reading? Well, you could look at statistics. You could look at visitor tracking surveys. Um, but the easiest way is to include a survey. Um, and I'll talk about the, the, more, the more intricate parts, the statistical analysis. But first, we'd like to talk a little bit about an online survey that we created. Um, when I say we, I mean Nancy and I. I created the online aspects of this, which correlated with a visitor, an audience research project for the Wheaton Arts and Cultural Center. Um, and using SurveyMonkey, do people know SurveyMonkey? Well, SurveyMonkey is also free software, um, but I recommend that you subscribe as a professional, uh, get a professional account. It's only $20 a month, and if you think of how long you're going to have an, uh, an online survey circulate, it's probably not going to be more, for more than three or four months any, you know, from start to finish. So it's definitely worth the 60 to 80 bucks because um, what the professional account allows you to do is upload photographs and really make it seem like it's, uh, it's professional and that it's specific to your institution, that it's not being created by a third party. So we did that for Wheaton Arts and Cultural Center, which you could see in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, develop the questions. It's your, it's your basic online survey with either multiple choice. You could have open-ended, but it's either, you know, they click. They could pick A, B, C, or D. They could pick all of the above. You could have it so that they only have one choice. You could have it so that they give three answers. And then from that, SurveyMonkey makes it completely easy to get analysis. Like, it's basically they'll do it for you. You just click, and it gives you a pie chart of what people, how many, you know, what the percentages are, who liked what the best. Um, and that's what's on the other, other image there. And that is, like, no extra money to get all of these, all these data analyses that you put in your reports to your board. And they think you're so smart. Or in my case, my clients. Or for grants. Or for grants. It's just, it's amazing. Um, did you want, do you want to say anything else about this online survey? Or? No, I just want to tell you what we used it for. It'll be, take just a second. Um, Wheaton Arts and Cultural Center is an organization in South Jersey that was basically a tourist destination. And they wanted to develop a much more intimate relationship with the people who live right around there. So that's why the audience research questions uh, project was all about. What do people who live within a half-hour drive of this place want and need and would like to see there? And it really set the stage for them, for the people at Wheaton Arts, to start shifting their programming to much more family-oriented activities, much more hands-on activities. Um, and that has implications not only for their marketing, but for their physical plant that they're pursuing too. And this audience research methodology was threefold in that it was interviews, focus groups, sort of your traditional market research techniques, but also incorporated this online uh, survey to reach out to more people. Uh, and we did it by getting a collection of email addresses, um, which, which was given to us through their membership base. Um, but you could also have it be a pop-up window so that when people go to the landing page of your website, 
the survey pops up and they can get into it that way, or it could be emailed to them. And that allows your market research study to go viral, meaning that people could forward this link. You didn't have to be invited to the, you know, to the focus group to participate in the audience research study. Um, and that really allows you to get a larger, I think we, we reached over 2,000 people, and of that we got about a 22, 25% return from that, which is astronomical. Okay. The best, best in multiple ways, um, analytical or statistic analysis software out there is made by Google. And best, I say best because it's free. Um, and it's also, basically when Google uh, exploded and became like this billionaire company, they bought up a lot of smaller companies to offer their services. And this was one of them. This software was not developed by Google, but by an audience research company. And then Google bought them in order to offer the free service to people that hosted their sites with Google. But you don't have to do that anymore. And with Google Grants, you could get uh, this and, and more, but I'll talk, I won't get carried away. Um, how this works is you sign up for Google Analytics, and it basically gives you an HTML code. You paste that code into the bottom of whatever WordPress template you want, and presto, in like two days' time, you get all of these charts, graphs, um, visitor tracking, you get uh, geographical information about people that are going to your site. You could even see down to the IP address of someone who's visiting your site. Um, I recommend this, too, because foundations have started to recognize this. Um, and so that this is one of the uh, more companies on the forefront of it, of visitor tracking. Uh, and it really allows you to see the trends that develop from your website. One of the others that I prefer to use is statcounter.com. Um, and it's free up until about 500 entries, and then it won't watch, it won't keep track of your entries anymore, which could which will become problematic very quickly if you're getting 500 hits a day. Um, and then you'd have to upgrade to a professional account. But the reason I recommend this website, and it works the same way, it gives you a simple little code that you put in and it's automatic, um, is because it gives you up-to-date statistics. Google Analytics takes about two to three days to uh, process the statistics and to send out the report. This is instantaneous. I could tell the second I post something on my blog if a lot of people are reading it. And it's a little bit less specific about um, the vis visitor paths and visitor tracking. It still gives you, I think you could see um, from my, um, from the blog, you could see down to the IP address but it really tells you, so if you're posting something and you want to know when people are reading it, whether or not it's popular enough, this is the site that will really give you that information. Do people use Twitter and Hootsuite? Okay. Um, and one of the things that Daniel mentioned about using the different social networking sites and about the importance of... Um, Viral marketing and social networking about having it be a conversation with people within that within that group 
like when he said that Flickr had um, a specific fan base that were interested in Flickr, all of those also have statistical analysis software that will tell you. Um, most of them you either just have to set up or download something else. For example, Hootsuite is that for Twitter. And it will tell you, if you put out a link through Twitter, it will tell you the breakdown of how many people clicked on that link so that you could follow your online presence as it goes viral. And you could find out where people are, which is important for development and fundraising, what they like. All right. So we're going to ask you now if you have any questions for us. Anybody have any ideas, any thoughts about this? Any questions? Do you guys use a lot of the bold conversions in analytics? I'm sorry. I didn't... So do you use up? I mean, do you use, I, I use analytics as an awesome tool. And you can get up-to-date information. I check it out after lunch to see like if I know if my presentation is going to be high that day because they don't give me like up-to-date information that day. Okay. It's on all of our sites. So, but I was curious if you use, I don't use the gold conversion and stuff yet. just haven't got enough time to do it. I'm just curious if you do that or not. Um, we have not, we, we spend most of the time learning what our most visited pages, um, time spent on site for various sections um, and things like that. So, we're still developing that. Okay. I was just curious if there's a benefit to really diving into it. Yes. How's a blog different from a listen? Pardon me, could you talk up, speak up a little? How is a blog different from a listen? How is a blog different from a listserv? Oh, like an email listserv? Um, well, a listserv is... It's basically a database of emails that, so that when people write in, it tracks what people are writing to the listserv. A blog comes from whatever institution. It has only a specific amount of authorized users. Um, so it's, if I were to have, or if Daniel's blog has a specific amount of authors, those are people who will write to it. Other people can comment on it, but it's different from a listserv in that it's not... Um, it's not circulated. Am I describing this yeah. right? Um, it's not circulated through the email, and it's not. It's it's always there on the website. It's not. You don't have to go back and see just specific emails. It's authorized, or it's yeah. It's basically um, approved information. So put it. Uh, could you put it a different way? So if I wanted to have either a blog or a listserv. Which one would I choose and why? It's going to depend on a variety of factors. If you're communicating essential information to a set base of users, you might just go with a listserv. A, a blog, there's a lot more to a blog because, one, you're publishing it online, so it becomes a web link that can be emailed out. But a blog link might also incorporate other forms of content. So you might embed other links related to um, the article you've written as a post. You might have images you've embedded. You might have, have chosen to include a video within the blog post. So it's really a published article online that will live on that web link 
uh, indefinitely. So the listserv is something that you would write, Daniel, and then you would send out to a whole bunch of people um, via their email addresses, right? Right. And a blog is something that people have to come to your site to get. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, okay. Does that make things clear? Thanks. Yeah. Uh, where to begin. Uh, our institution, we have about, oh, maybe 15, 18 staff members. We're all stretched thin. Um, and I've, I've been involved with AAM and ASLA for the 37 years of my career. I'm one of the gray here, so I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I know what the, young, the younger generation is doing. And one of the criticisms uh, AAF uh, is that it's a huge organization. Their annual meetings, you know, five, six thousand people. Uh, more geared toward art museums, art museums with 300 to 500 to, you know. And as a historical organization, you kind of feel a little lost at an AAF conference. So how does this apply to me? Uh, how much time is involved? I mean, we're, we're thinking about going on you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that, and we're stretched as it is. How much time is involved in, in updating it and monitoring it and, you know, doing... It, it seems... I don't know what the hell my question is. Can I ask the question another way? If I were sitting in your seat, I would say, is it worth it? Is it worth the time and the expense? Yeah. Is it worth it? I, was, no, I mean, we're, we want our director wants to, you know, get get us as technologically involved as possible. Right. But you know, we we're smaller organizations, and it just you know, what happens when you know somebody at the front desk needs. Change. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. That um, I was trying to concentrate more on statistics for this, but one of the things I, I do a lot of is how to um, decide which is the best site to use for your institution. And for smaller historic sites with a, with limited time and resources, I would definitely say going a route of a blog or using um, the blog like a site such as Flickr or YouTube are better. Um, and I say that only in so much as, I mean, everybody has a Facebook page, so it would be great if you could be there, but, or a Twitter page, but you really need to update those frequently. They're recommending for Twitter people update it five to eight times a day, which not even large foundations can do that. Um, and how often and do you for, have to update a blog? An updated blog, you could write a weekly blog post. I would just say make sure you keep it at a specific day or, you know, like time that you think so people know when to expect content, but then you could scale back how much you, how much you use. Same with YouTube if you have video or Flickr if you have photos, but I really would recommend a blog is the best way to go. I, I would ask that, I mean... I said earlier, if you're going to do it, and especially if you're getting pressure from from above to do something, 
you, you pick the project that you're most comfortable with and, and one you feel is going to have the greatest success. The last thing you want to do as your first technology project is to fall flat on your face. Yeah. So, so keep it simple and build on that momentum. I will also say within our museum, and maybe it's happening for everyone right now, as budgets get cut, um, I've noticed that some of our, our, our paper marketing is being eliminated, and we're more focused online. So we are now, instead of purely producing um, content-focused projects, we're now assisting with marketing to, to do things online instead of, of paying for print pieces. Yeah. That means that the person in marketing now has more time to assist with online projects. But, and it's, it's it'll be there. I mean, with a blog, it, even if you, let's say you missed a week, away. yeah, but it, it'll always be on the web. But even if you missed a week, let's say with a blog, then it's like, all right, the museum was closed for a week. It would be detrimental to start a Facebook page and then leave it because it tells you, last time this user blogged in was five months ago. You know, or I'm, I'm exaggerating. But um, for people who are updating what they ate for breakfast on their account, <laughs> to not have your presence be updated for five months would actually look bad. But a blog is like a newspaper. It's dated and then that's it. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you about the absence of a presence. It just shows you the presence. So, Anna? Yeah. I guess my question is, so if you start a blog... Can you ask it a little more loudly? If, if you start a blog, for instance, how do people find you? Great question. How do they find you? Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> it is, it's not build it and they will come. Um, <laughs> You do need to have a little bit of a viral marketing, you know, do some viral marketing for it. But once you start, uh, like, putting something on Flickr, let's say, and I'm sure you have this experience, everyone who's already looking on Flickr will then find your site and your blog. So as long as it's directed back to your site, you know, if you write something. And one of the most crucial aspects about viral marketing and social networking is that it's social networking, and it's not called that because it's just a matrix of people. It's called that because you start a conversation with people. You have to be social. And then once it becomes viral marketing, it means that someone's reposted something that you've written. And so then all the people that read their blog read what you wrote, or they retweet it, or, you know, whatever. It, it goes... Um, and so it'll work, you'll, you'll see, like, I started a site for a client about eight months ago, and first I, and it was exponential, like, I first I had 12, then I had 48, and then I had 100, and then, because every time someone else comes on, they share it, they forward it around, and you gain momentum, but you have to just be social about it. So if Anna wanted to start a blog for her institution, and she writes something really funny or provocative or poignant, mm -hmm. puts it up there, what does she do next? Well, remember that once you put it on the web, it's searchable by any search engine. So I would say make sure your first entry is, is poignant um, and that you use, I mean, I, wouldn't, I just read in the local paper here that, um, I forget her name, but one of the uh, teenage actress's name who was like searched the most on the web is now linked with the most viruses 
Didn't, did you, Jessica Beale. Yeah, two people read that article. Um, but you want to say, like, don't just talk about things that are specific to your institution. Talk about why people, what make it more accessible. Because if I'm, I mean, don't mention Jessica Beale, but. <laughs> But you see what I'm saying? Like, if you have um, a chair in your collection that looks like Miss Vandero or somebody, mention that so that people who might search for some a larger name, um, or make sure you name whatever department it's in, because people search for deck arts or you know whatever. But you can also work with your your web team, whoever oversees the website to make a special announcement so that when people come to the site, they realize there's a new blog. Check it out. Um, we used, I'm sure a lot of people on here use e-news blasts. We made a point of announcing that the IMA has a new blog. And then we went around to other people within the museum. We went to our educators and said, hey, can you let all of the teachers that you have relationships with know that we have this new blog? And we went around every single department and said, hey, we're going to launch this. Please help spread the word so that, one, if someone came to our homepage, they knew that it was there. But on top of that, we were reaching out to people we have real connections with and said, basically, hey, help us out here. We're just we're trying this new thing. And then send it to your family and friends. Yeah. <laughs> okay, over here. Can you address on, on Facebook difference between things like groups and fan pages and institutional pages and which is more effective in, in their uses because I'm noticing you know we have a we have a site group but not necessarily a site page. You have and a wait you have a group but not a page? A group but not a page. Okay. Um, and so uh, we've been using it specifically for communicating recovery information to a lot of volunteers in a flood situation. But we're looking at doing and staying in contact with that. But we're looking at you know institutional pages, trafficking. You know what what is what is the difference in, and what are each well, are suited for? Um, one of the things that when Facebook launched, it differentiated itself from other uh, pre-existing social networking sites was that it was the person. It was the authorized person. So like when Facebook started, you had to have like an Ivy League email address to get onto it, as opposed to, say, MySpace, where you could be Rainbow Unicorn 53. And, How'd you and, know my name? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when it started, it, it developed groups, Facebook groups first, because that was then when um, people could get together about a common interest. It developed Facebook fan pages when it realized that, um, let's say, for example, your local soccer team, that's a group, but if it were the Philadelphia Phillies, they're, they're a group, but they're also an organization. And so it authorized organizations to create a page. And what it'll do for you now, especially if you identify yourself as a nonprofit, is allow you to mimic your web page on Facebook. So you're within the Facebook community, but your web page keeps the same branding, um, the same layout, and allows you to have multiple pages. Um, and I would recommend, and that's newer, so that's why you didn't have that option when you started a group. But I would recommend going to a page because it'll allow you to put in other widgets, other, you know, like I said, like the donate now button, um, other posts, other. You wanna. 
I think I think you've covered it. Do you want to continue this discussion? Because we don't want to hold you um, past 5.30, but we know there's some additional questions over there. How, do you, how would you guys like to do this? We also have one thing we want to show you, which we think you'll find interesting. So what, do you, what would you like to do? Would you like to finish off the questions and then um, see what we want to show you? So first, are you guys okay with that? All right, let's see. Um, you guys build it up way too much. Really. <laughs> uh, so I've given an overview of the projects at IMA, and we launched a new initiative in April of this year, which we think might be could be the next step for what's happening on the web. And for the past three years, our museum has really developed a, a great department for producing videos. Um, that mainly we used on YouTube and iTunes, um, but we weren't quite satisfied with those outlets for a variety of reasons. So now that we have full support within the Institute of the Technology and we have such a talented staff, we decided to build our own dream site of what we wanted to do if we could create a video art site. So Art Babel um, was born on, on April officially. We launched with 10 partners at the beginning, and you'll notice at a glance, there's absolutely no mention of our museum. So we branded it in a way that was, was more about the community, more about the site that the partnering museums could own themselves, um, take pride in the content that they upload, help market it, help build it, help cultivate it. So the past three months, we've been working really, really hard on, on spreading the word on this site. We just added seven new partners, so we're up to 17. But our goal is to really create a site that is managed by museum professionals, unlike YouTube. And the best example is if you, when you get home, go to YouTube and search, and search for an art video. You will not be able to make any sense of what you see. You might think this is an art video, and it won't be. You'll think this won't be an art video and it will be. There's no way of really getting reliable search results. That was one of our frustrations. So we wanted to build a site that was managed by people that know the profession, that most importantly could provide a really engaging, welcoming experience to visitors of all backgrounds, whether you have a PhD in art history or the first time are discovering the artist Maya We wanted you to come in and just feel comfortable in your experience. Our goal is to make this the online destination for video art content, which is why it's not IMA TV, it's why it's Art Babble, and it's about everyone else coming in together and joining this global community of museums or organizations that create art content. That's what we've been doing since April, and the, we're extremely happy with that. We received a grant, so right now it's it's absolutely free for any museum or organization to join our battle and upload their own video content. So how does it work? If I go on to Art Babel, what do I see? Well, you'll see featured content on the front page in the slideshow, what's new and what's popular. You can go to partners and browse by what we've produced, what the Guggenheim has produced, what the Van Gogh Museum has produced. You can search by artist terms, or you can search by channels. If you want to look at what we have on contemporary art or 
art videos that relate to robots, that's where you find it. Or if you just want to search by mango, type it in and you'll get search results. That's how you'll use it. One thing we have not really mentioned in terms of social networking is Twitter, which is a really fast-growing social media tool. And you'll notice um, right here is we've set up a plugin so that whenever anyone on Twitter mentions Archival, it appears in this widget on our front page. So one, it's a way we can track what people are saying and get immediate feedback, but it's a way in which our community can feel very involved in this site as, as it grows. Mm -hmm. That's what you can do on, on your main sites, on, on your blog, if you have a Twitter account, or you can do it based on a search term related to an institution. And this is this is very exciting too because there are um, there are there are sites out there that will allow you to create your own network, but this is really the first time it was done on a professional level for a very uh, specific field. So think about all of the history museums across the country, all of them having videos either that they've produced or that are in their archives. Think of everybody in the country going to one site and having it all there available to them, all sorted by, con by topic and by institution. That's what these guys are doing. Is that right? That's, That's right. right. We're doing this for art, but there's no reason in the future that this could be history battle or, or a zoo battle. Or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, the way I think about history museums is if you think about new technologies and new ideas, it starts in the commercial world, then it migrates to art museums, and then it migrates to history museums. So what we're giving you now is a preview of coming attractions for you guys. So thank you very much. This is the